0: Hello and welcome to another episode of PhD Pending, the podcast for early career humanities scholars. My name is Anne and I have a PhD in English literature. Together we will deep dive into different aspects of PhD life and explore what it really means to do a PhD in the humanities. Today's episode is the first in a new series about different PhD programs around the world. Since there's no international standard for how a PhD program should look like, Every country is a little different, and in the PhDs worldwide episodes, we want to investigate the different systems. Of course, mobility is a big thing for academics, we all know that, and you might find yourself in the position that you have to move to a different country for the program of your choice. To equip you with some basic knowledge about the different systems, I will feature different early career scholars to chat with me about their PhD programs. Today, as you will have seen from the title, we'll talk about the US American system to hopefully help you understand its structure and requirements a bit better. Maybe because you're starting your PhD, moving abroad for your studies, or so you know what others talk about when you go to international conferences. My guest today is Luciana Lilly, an American doctoral candidate in English at the University of North Carolina at Greensboro, whose concentrations are 19th century British and American comparative literatures. Well, that's a mouthful. (laughs) Her areas of interest are explorations of literal and metaphorical cannibalism in texts, feminist and embodiment theories, and women writers. She's also a foodie, which I can attest to, and a great chef and business owner of a mobile exploring business called Great Expectations Luciana welcome to the show
1: Thanks. I'm so excited to be here and to have this conversation. It's always fun. It's
0: really nice to have you. And just in case people are wondering, Luciana and I met at a conference in 2019. It's been a good while now. And we actually shared, yeah, we shared an apartment essentially, didn't we? <laughs> we did. We had that like little collection of rooms and our rooms
1: were right next door to each other, but we shared a bathroom. So
0: We did. That's how we met. We met in our joint bath in a university hall. (laughs) Yep, we were getting ready simultaneously, same same time, yep. Mm -hmm. Quite the bonding experience. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely. So this is how we got to know each other, and Luciana is going to help us understand and unpack the US-American system. And I suppose the first question would be, how long is an American PhD degree in the humanities
1: So it really depends on the university as a whole. Like the university that I'm at currently, um, they really try to push because of funding and things like that, a four-year program, which is actually really tight and really short for uh, the average American university. So with that being said, universities say like, Harvard and um, just in general, just a a variety of other ones, they are more on the six to seven year side. Um, So it really depends on where you are and kind of the funding and (laughs) the amount of money that they're able to give you um, in order to support, right, your, your pursuit of your degree. So Um, It's anywhere from the four to six being the average, I think, um, number range.
0: And I know we've talked about kind of joint master's and PhD programs. So where I'm from, we do a separate master's degree and then we apply for a PhD. Um, And I've heard you talk about these joint programs. Can you explain those a small bit?
1: Um, So again, it depends on the university. We have an MA to PhD track um, at Greensboro, but you actually do get your master's degree first. So you actually do get a separate degree before you get like would then go on. Um, You just don't have to basically reapply. Right. Um, But there is um, universities. I think it's I could be wrong. I think it's Duke um, who have like these and UNC who have these joint master's PhD programs where you literally, they kind of, I think, condense them a little bit. Um, you commit to like a six, seven year program, but you don't get a separate master's. You technically do all that you would with a normal master's degree, but then you also just kind of go straight into, like there's no like transition, it's just that entire time is master's to PhD. Um, So you don't have a separate master's degree, you graduate with a PhD.
0: Right, okay, and tell me a bit more about the application process. So how do you find your program? How do you find your supervisor? What was that like for you?
1: A lot of Googling, really, truly. Uh, So when I was looking for um, like PhD programs specifically, um, I had already done my master's at UNC Greensboro, but I was looking, I had a radius for me. Like like obviously it's different for um, a lot of other people um, because there's a lot of like travel for like to attend a specific university. But for me I had a radius and so I was googling to see like I had you know I needed a PhD in literature I wanted specifically something to concentrate in 19th century British um, at the time is what I was primarily leaning towards Um, and so that allowed me to kind of sift through like okay so this university doesn't really have this as like a focus this one does right so like there's that like filtering and balancing Um, cost is also something that, uh, can affect because funding in the United States is a lot more iffy, I think on average, and it can be, Mm -hmm. um, you have to kind of fight a little bit for funding, um, in that sense. And so trying to find a university that, um, I'm not going to walk out with like a ton of debt or whatever, um, was something important for me personally. So, um, when I applied, um, there's, A lot of universities, at least on the American side, have um, this GRE test that you have to take that um, it just kind of, there are literature specific ones and then there's like this general specific. Um, And so the general is the GRE and that's what you take and you have to get like based on certain scores, and it's got written portions and math portions. It's just right. It's for kind of all these graduate programs thrown in. Um, the thing that I did find out is if I was doing literature specifically, that wasn't, they didn't care about my math scores. So I didn't <laughs> didn't bother with that. Um, but yeah, the, you know, we had to take the test. Then you have Um, The kind of formal application that you have to submit that would require things like um, writing samples and um, obviously teacher references, you know, course references from past, like undergrad and um, master's or whatever. Um, And so that's kind of what that looked like. Um, The writing sample being, for the literature side, the most important thing. Um, That and, of course, professor recommendations. So... Um, for me again, I got my master's at my university and then I also got I'm, you know, getting my PhD at the same university. So uh the recommendation of my professors was really important because they they they're the ones who would be like taking me through the doctoral process as well. So um yeah, those those are the things that kind of hold the most weight. Um, And that's the kind of general application process. Like like I said, there are some universities that have like literature specific um, tests that you have to take. But that's the, it just really depends on who or where you're going. And at this point with COVID, you know, um, tests are kind of falling by the wayside as a, a marker in general, because it's really hard for them to really determine anything from them anyways. Mm,
0: especially with a math test, if you're trying to do a PhD in literature, I've been trying to get out of maths my entire life, and then you get <laughs> thrown into an exam on maths after not really having studied it for your undergrad or your masters, right? Exactly.
1: You know, I think when I took my GRE for my masters, um, I the last time I had done math was I think three years before that. So like the, that was the last time I had touched anything pertaining to math. So yeah, I was stressed and then found out like, no, they don't care. And I was like, okay, fine, then I'm not gonna care.
0: That sounds like a right nightmare. But so you went on from your master's to your PhD within, you know, your university and your department that you were already in. Um, but maybe for someone who was trying to move to a different university, what do you think is more important in the American system? The supervisor? And if their areas of research really fits your PhD idea? Or is it more about the reputation of A, the university, B, the department, and C, maybe just like general research, you know, areas that the department covers? What do you think is more important?
1: Um, I think it's a mixture of, I think it really depends. Um, I, like, so the status of the university matters but it also like whether you're able to get into that university is all right like that that that's um kind of a question uh, so for example like at unc greensboro where i'm at um, I'm odds are not going to be able to teach at anything higher than like that equivalent level, if not lower, right? I've got faculty who are from Harvard, from Columbia, from like these massive, right? And they're teaching at UNC Greensboro. So like that's kind of that expectation. So uh, prestigiousness of the university does go a long way, but it also is right. Are you able to get into that program or not? Because then they're more competitive, Um So that's uh, a factor there, but definitely um, like director or which is what like the chair of our committees is what we call them here in the university. So you say supervisor. Um, And so with that being the case, that is something really important, but you, again, it's Googling, it's going based off of, okay, what are their publications? What are their types of interests? Um, At my university, there's only one 19th century British um, instructor, British professor, um, Dr. Anne Wallace, and she's the only one there who does anything pertaining to 19th century British. So she does it all. Um, and so, um, what's fantastic about my, uh, chair is that she is super flexible and super interested and just works with whatever you're interested in, um, and learns in essence along with you. And so that's, that's really great. Um, and, I love that flexibility about my chair. Um, But yeah, it really depends on, you know, again, is there a specific type of thing? We have a few super eco-criticists at our our university. So a lot of, we have a lot of people who come to our university specifically to work with them um, because that's a smaller field and they carry a lot of weight name-wise. So it really, again, depends on like what you're working in, where you're working and kind of what um, like multiple factors, but like prestigiousness and then like your chair kind of work in general as being like factors. The thing that I always tell though, like visiting students is also program dynamic is super important. Um, there are some that are super cutthroat um, and super kind of like backstabby <laughs> and then there are others that are a lot more supportive um, and so like depending on who you are and what you um, do well in what type of environment you, you know you type of thrive in um, it could be that more competitive and you're fine because um, I feel like academia tends towards that Um, as a whole uh, but that's not something for me and so like the dynamic for me was the most important factor like at my university having that supportive environment from like peers and from uh, faculty those were the things that like were the biggest uh, determining factors yeah
0: i was gonna ask what exactly you mean by program because it sounds a lot like you're talking about your cohort Um, but obviously you also include faculty and other, you know, colleagues, uh, within staff. So maybe before we dive into how, you know, your, your program is really structured, we can come back to your supervisor or you call her chair. Is it typical that you only have one supervisor or chair or two, or how does that typically work? So there are, um, in
1: the university system and um, the American side, there are typically, typically you have one chair. So that's like one who's overall. Um, you have a committee um, as a whole um, where you will have like three or four faculty uh, on your committee. And so that I have four technically on mine. Um, with that like structure, you can have co-chairs depending on Uh, if you have two primary, like, important fields, right, that you want to have, like, equal control um, and equal input in your dissertation and your kind of doctoral program as a whole. But typically speaking, it's one, and then you have these other, like, two or three faculty who kind of support and bring in Additional like specific viewpoints, depending on like what it is, so it can depend on what we have comprehensive exams are are one of those main factors for who's on your committee um, and then that can shift depending on after your comprehensive exam what your actual dissertation is doing, so that's what that kind of looks like as a whole
0: so we don't have committees over here, so can you kind of? talk us through what does a committee do and how involved are they who are they what is their you know involvement in your thesis overall and how often do you see them or not see them
1: so it it will have to depend on it talks a little bit about the structure of the phd over here as a whole which looks very different obviously um so we have coursework first that you do typically about two years worth of coursework we do. Um, So it's like graduate level coursework, which quite often is the time where you're getting to know the faculty and things like that if you're new to that PhD program. And then we have what's called a comprehensive exam. And so this is the thing that like you start to form the committee for, and this is where like they come into play. Um, For us, comprehensive exams, um they can look really different depending on the university for my specific program uh we had three like areas in which you are taking your exams you have a primary secondary and a tertiary Uh, the primary is going to be whatever your like main focus that is um so for me that was 19th century british um and so you compose a a list of say around 50 authors uh, with multiple texts for that and you're expected to then like spend this time reading and studying them Um, and then you're going to take an exam that's five hours long where you take a written exam and you have to write three out of five questions that you're writing and they're essay style and you don't know what you're getting and um so that's like the primary and then the secondary and the tertiary are each like three hours long they're usually composed about 25 ish authors or texts depending on if it's like a theory list um and so my secondary was 19th century american and then my tertiary was the like it was a compilation of theories so it was like feminist theory embodiment theory Um, genre theory, et cetera. And so there were like a variety of theories that we kind of rolled into that one. So when composing that committee, you have to think about what are your fields going to be? And so who would then look the best as and like be the most familiar with those fields, right? So they work on those lists with you. You're coming up to these exams. They also are the ones who grade the exams, right? So they're the ones who create the exams and they grade the exams, Um, so that's also where that like interaction comes in. And then if you pass them, um, you go on to a oral exam. If you pass the written, you go on to this oral exam, which you then like meet in a room with them and they ask you questions about your, your lists or your exam responses as a whole. Um, and then also your dissertation ideas, um. And then if you pass that, uh, you get to um, move on to the prospectus phase. And so there, you work primarily with your chair. That's typically how it works. Um, Because it's easier, right, to work with directly one person than it is to work with, like, say, three or four at a time. Um, And so that's where, um, in writing up my prospectus or my proposal for my dissertation, uh, that was where I would, you know working through rough drafts and things like that i would send them to my chair um they would send me back you know feedback etc and until we got to a point where we could set an appointment with the rest of my committee they would then see that kind of like finalized draft version and give me and then we'd all meet and that's where i had my defense of my proposal or my prospectus. and so with that they come together and they ask me questions about it. And we determine whether it's like a good enough project, right, to move on to a dissertation phase. Again, if I pass that, you're quite often at that point, you can either, your committee might stay the same, or you might add someone on, someone might step off, like, okay, so for the exams, this is where we were focusing. But now that you're doing your dissertation in this specific like direction, I'm not so, like, that's not really so much my thing. And then they move on um, and you might bring someone else on or, right, bring someone on additionally. For me, I had three for my committee. And then um, after moving into the proposal um, and prospectus phase, I brought on a fourth because uh, their area of research was really useful for having like that feedback um, for my dissertation. So I had four for that stage. And then it depends on your committee as a whole. Some of them want to be really involved. Right. So some faculty want to meet with you on a regular basis. Others don't. It's really, really, really varying depending on the person and uh, the dynamic that you have with them. My chair, I meet with her every two weeks. And so we meet every two weeks and we talk about whatever it is that I've been like looking at in that time frame. And it's a, just a really great check-in for me. I haven't checked in with the rest of my committee in a very long time. In fact, I just did via email because I had to for the program, (laughs) but also I'm getting to a point, so like my first chapter that I was doing for my dissertation was really focused on 19th century British. So my second chapter that I'm now transitioning to, it's more American text focused, and so I'm going to probably reach out to my committee, who's from the 19th century American side, right, and see if they want to see drafts, right, as it's going through. Some, again, some faculty want to see drafts and they want to be more involved. Others just want to kind of be, here's the end product, and then they're going to take a look at that for the defense And So it really depends on who you're working with, what that dynamic is. But that's what that committee looks like. And it is a very different dynamic, obviously, because we have a lot more voices and can be opinions, both dissenting and (laughs) agreeing. So that can create... Both really great things because you get different viewpoints, which is fantastic, but also it can be a little frustrating when they're disagreeing and you're trying to figure out how to navigate that. I haven't had any disagreement, which is great, <laughs> uh, but I know others who have, and it, it can be really, really complicated because you're kind of stuck in the middle.
0: It sounds like a too many cooks situation. It
1: can be, very much so, and if you don't take that... That's something really important to take into consideration when thinking about your committee is the dynamics and how well they work together. I know some people who had to have certain people and they they just don't play well with others, right? Or play well with specific people on the committee. And so that just can make it a lot more frustrating. And I think there adds a lot more stress than already is there, right? You don't need more stress than is already a part of the dissertation process and the doctoral process. And then you have faculty who don't get along or have very different opinions as to how a dissertation or exams should be done and then it becomes um, a bit of a nightmare.
0: It already sounds horrible when you think about two co-supervisors. You know, but then to bring more and more and more people on, everyone has their own opinion, everyone has their own, you know, research agenda, and then just to, you know, bring that all together, melt that together in, you know, a productive way and get a draft in that satisfies everyone just sounds very, very stressful. I'm very I'm I'm very grateful for my one supervisor that I have now <laughs> hearing that. <laughs> yeah uh
1: again for me I will say the process hasn't been bad like I I really appreciate that um as I'm kind of coming into different things that I can reach out to them and just be like hey so I am kind of doing this thing that focuses more in your area do you want to see and then getting honestly multiple feedback can be really helpful but it can also be a little confusing which is when a lot of the times if you have a good director they'll manage that right if you have a good chair they'll they'll manage those relationships and and kind of take care of that because I do know people whose directors have had to be like no we're just we're gonna do this we're this is the direction this is acceptable this is why wh-, you know like and just kind of push it forward if you don't have a good chair who is confident in doing that um or okay to do that then that's where you run into those like multiple voice issues and kind of a stalled dissertation stalled doctoral program uh, program so yeah
0: it sounds like we have your one supervisor with your chair and then your committee are kind of all the this- sub-supervisors on kind of different levels here and you you already touched on you know some of the aspects of the structure of the program. Obviously over here we have like three or four years uh, we barely have any kind of modules that we need to take. I think my university was a bit special in that we had to take postgrad modules but they weren't necessarily content based. they were more like research strategies for PhD students or how to pass your viva, or how to teach, you know, some kind of like meta-content that arguably sometimes applied to the program, sometimes it didn't. But what you're telling me sounds a bit like, and correct me if I'm wrong here, and just walk me through the structure again, it sounds like you start out with a period of time where you actually take modules that remind me kind of like you're doing another master's almost, Then you have exams on that, and then you go through the proposal process, and then into the actual writing process. So it sounds like everything we do leading up to the PhD, and even, you know, talking about the proposal, adjusting the proposal, once this is accepted, you're kind of in the PhD program over here, when it sounds like all of this is already part of your PhD program so explain to me how that works when you apply for your PhD program you know just talk me through the structure kind of and how long each section takes
1: yeah so uh, I'll start with the last question because I think that kind of starts with the beginning um, and walks us through that so with the like when you apply to a program you some people may have an idea of what their proposal will be and so um, it's kind of a leg up which is great because you can start um as you're working through the various like graduate seminars that you're taking and things like that you can in essence fine-tune or try to like look through and work through that process um work through what that idea is so that when you come to the dissertation phase you are kind of just ready to start going right hopefully you have some research already you're not having to start from scratch right there are others who haven't and that like right they make it through those seminars um, still aren't quite sure like they have a direction maybe but they aren't quite sure they've made it through exams um, and they come to that exam right end of that exam and supposed to be that beginning of that proposal process and now they have to figure out what it is that they're going to be writing on that is a little bit more stressful. I would say but it's also typical like it's not something that is unusual so I will say I actually have really appreciated having the seminar portion like it yes it adds more time and more stress so that usually takes about two years it can be like a year and a half to two years depending on what program you're in and you're taking things that quite often are pertaining to you have so many courses you have to take in your field and you have so many courses you have to take in other fields so for me because my field was 19th century british i actually had to take um, a certain amount of courses outside they usually like demand like outside coursework that allows you to kind of have a broader perspective Um, overall and so uh, that's what that like the purpose of that is and then quite often like a certain amount of theory courses and whatnot and so they're really useful and for me I had I didn't have a specific idea in mind when I applied to the PhD program I knew what area of focus I wanted but I didn't know what dissertation topic now I an idea surfaced from my first semester Uh, doing those seminars that first year, first semester, I landed on the cannibalism track and haven't looked back. Um, And so with that, like that was really great because I started working through this idea in those courses. It was in a Shakespeare course. It was a Renaissance literature course, not my field area of study. Um, So if that hadn't been the case, I don't know if I would have landed with the idea that I currently have and exploring metaphorical cannibalism. Like that's just, I just don't foresee that happening just out of the blue. Um, Titus Andronicus, man, it sent me on a path. So like, I'm really appreciative that I had to take, right, these other courses in these other fields because they've allowed me to get different perspectives and there is a language requirement that is part of most PhD programs. You have to have like a certain level of proficiency in at least like one language. That is something that quite often you're fulfilling if you haven't already fulfilled it during your coursework, which means that quite often you're taking an undergrad course in uh, like Spanish or something like that um, as well as right fulfilling your graduate courses. So that, again, is something that takes usually over two years. You hopefully have formed your committee after your first year um, and have created lists that you're starting to try to read through. I took my exams the first semester of my third year. So that's how that worked for me time-wise. And then I passed my exams and worked on my prospectus the following semester. So that would be end of my third year, I completed my prospectus, um, had it approved, and then started working on dissertation for the next however long. I am finishing fifth year now, and I am over halfway through technically through my dissertation, um, but there's a lot more, and COVID you know, threw a lot of kinks into things and has done that for a lot of PhD programs over here. So the general process is that like you spend two to three years getting to the dissertation in essence, and then once you've kind of reached that like third year, then the next two, three, even four years sometimes, right, can be your dissertation. So we don't fo- we don't get as much time to focus on the research side as you guys do. We don't get as much time to um, work through that writing and that developing. It's a lot shorter process. It's much more truncated for us. And again, like I said, for those who can come into the program or early on in the program, figure out at least the direction of their dissertation, you get in essence more built-in time to figure out ideas, to um, play with them, right? Because a lot of what we do when we're in academic programs, you're playing with ideas, you're playing through, you're working through What does this look like? How does this apply? Where does it going? Right. (laughs) And so having that coursework to be able to start to work through that is great because if you don't then you have right a very short time to kind of try to figure it out and get done
0: yeah Um. in terms of these the coursework that you do you're talking about it's somewhat similar to you, your interests, but not really like how far out are we talking here I get the language requirement I get that you're you know focusing on 19th century and you did a renaissance literature course how far out are we talking here you know are we talking you could also take a business module or you know a biology module or or, um, Italian lit or French lit or German lit or, you know, how far out are we talking here? So
1: technically you could take, honestly, as far out as you want to. Um, it does technically need to have some sort of tie-in. So quite often if someone's taking courses, like they may take courses from the women's and gender studies department or um, from the African-American and African diaspora courses or um, history courses, right? The, a lot of the times the, if you're taking courses outside of say the realm of English department, it can go much further afield. Let's say um, you're in rhetoric Uh, in the English department, and you're wanting to look at rhetoric and music, then you might be taking some music, right? So there is a little bit of play that you can technically take courses, honestly, anything that's like a graduate level, anywhere in the university. In theory, that is what you can do. Most of the time, you stay within your department. So most of the time, you're going to be staying within courses. So when I was getting my master's, I also got a post-baccalaureate certificate, in Women's and Gender Studies, which means technically I can teach because it's the 18 credit hour is what is required here in the university. I can teach um, WGS courses and be like cross-listed faculty and those types of things. So I specifically took those courses in that field, but when I was in the PhD program, because I'd already done that, I stayed in the English department. Now. It wasn't just literature courses i did take some rhetoric and theory courses that um because that's kind of pushed as again trying to like widen the field a little bit but all of my most all my courses were um not most all of my courses at the the phd level were in the english department
0: solely so right makes sense and looking at you know just the time spent that you have to actually write your thesis and research your thesis how long is a typical US American PhD thesis?
1: I think it varies a lot. I'd say most the average, I would say page length would be about uh probably mid hundreds in the in the mid hundreds range. I think an average chapter length is usually in the probably 30 to 40 page length and the average like dissertation structure being like intro with like say three bodies and then write some sort of conclusion. Um, My particular dissertation, my introduction is going to be actually like probably equal in length to my body chapters because there's so much foundation that I have to do to set up my my idea because it's it's a little wacky. Um, there's so much like theories and like various. There's a lot of intersection going on for my particular dissertation that my introduction is probably going to be about thirty to forty pages in and of itself, right? And so it's going to be equal to those body chapters with obviously what's most likely a short conclusion. So that can really depend. Um, I know a rhetoric PhD uh, who, because they were working with um, technology and VR technology as like in the classroom, and that was like a pedagogy English classroom focused dissertation, there were a lot of images and so, <laughs> um, and like those types of things and, and tables. And so it ended up in the 200 plus range. Um, So it just it really depends on that like dynamic and what it is you're writing and how but I would say most of the time they end up in that if it's just text based written in that like 100 span
0: yeah and looking at the you know every day. I know like, we are teaching, we have a lot of college admin going on, so what does it look like now that you're you know done with all your courses, you're done with your comps, you're researching? At what stage, if even, do you start teaching um or what other kind of admin things are going on in the background because we all know phds we multitask it's not just the research or you know the seminars that we've got going on so tell me about you know your role as a teacher when did that start or any other involvements that you have within your department
1: so my university is different um i will say funding i would say for the average university which fund i say funding because it teaching typically is part of funding. So that's why like that's part of that expected. um, You may teach certain courses depending on um, how like your fellowship works out, right? Um, So mm, I would say the average PhD program most typically allows you space to do that coursework. Then you may do like a little bit of teaching um, and then there's usually like a, 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 like one or two fellowship years that are built into that where you're truly just focusing on research. That is not the case at my university. Uh, my university, the average doctoral student comes in, they start teaching that first year um, and they teach the entire time. So your, your course load, when you're first teaching that first year at my university, you are teaching a one-one course load and you are also working in the writing center. And then the second year, you transition to an automatic 2-1 course load. So you're teaching two courses in the fall and one in the spring with the option to take on a second course, as well as the potential to take on a summer course. So one of the things that they promote at our university is that um, one of the difficulties, I think, in general with a lot of the other PhD programs is mo- universities are becoming more and more teaching focused and less like solely research based. And so with that being the case, not having as much experience teaching can ultimately be a thing that hurts you. So yes, it's great on the research side because you can focus on that. But if universities and like a lot of universities are focusing more on the teaching side nowadays, you are, if you have less teaching experience, you're not going to have as much, like you're not going to have as much of a leg up in the job market. Right. So that's the one beautiful side of our university, although it's so much work because you're balancing teaching and classes and, you know, dissertation, right? Like all of these things you're kind of be- and that's not to say, right, conferences and trying to publish and that's that's not including all of that, which we know is like a whole nother level. Um, just that aspect. Um, I've had a variety of courses that I've taught and I've had I'm experienced in teaching English 101 and a variety of literature courses that I've taught and freshman seminars. And the beauty, too, is that I am an instructor of record, which means that I am teaching, I am composing the syllabus, you know, and those types of things. And so that has been a great benefit, but it really varies. Most other universities, depending on funding, you're going to have more support for the research side, which means that you won't teach as much. And that teaching looks very different, um, whereas I have been submersed in teaching since
0: day one, in essence. <laughs> it definitely sounds very stressful. And I mean, it's kind of like you're a teacher and a student at the same time when you start your PhD program. So you have the courses that you take yourself, but then you're also part of the same faculty almost, right? And you're very much on both sides of the table, as, at least for the first half of your degree. Talking about Conferences, and I mean, we met at a conference and in terms of publications, uh, before we get to kind of the viva and the final stages of your uh, US American program, what does the requirements for conferences and for publications look like? Because over here, there is, you know, a certain... Number that you need to hit in terms of how many national and international conferences you should ideally go to um, and when you should publish. So maybe you can, you know, take us through that just for a short amount of time.
1: It's pretty loose and fast over here. Um, so there is pressure, and I would say pressure quite deliberately, to publish soon, publish early. Publish often, right? And it's a little insane in my own personal opinion uh, because we are balancing all of these other things and now we're supposed to also be doing publications. There is no set number per se. I would say that my director of graduate studies and my program would recommend one publication and they would say specifically one, like pulling and adjusting a chapter from your dissertation as being the thing that you should do, right? I would say that that isn't the case for most others. What my director of graduate studies is saying versus what actually happens is much different. I would say that the pressure to publish or perish uh, is very much um, a reality from kind of first foot on campus. Um, Conferences, it is expected that you go to as many as you can there is no recommendation as to number or international versus national. I would say probably there is no specific recommendation on international, especially because U.S. tends to be very um, U.S. focused. So with that being the case, like there is not necessarily as much of a pressure. Um, We obviously have MLA, which is huge over here. Um, And obviously it's a huge international thing but for us it's a local thing right so there's that supervisors as you would say probably recommend having a balance between uh, regional and uh, national specifically for us because we have some really big national conferences and so with that being the case they want you to get connected and networked with the regional conferences, the smaller conferences, uh, those that are more field-specific conferences, and then they also recommend the larger national conferences as having like a balance between those so that you can show that you have both that like breadth and depth type of thing. So there's no specific number. It's probably expected that you go to at least two or three a year. But I will say that I do not and I, uh, <laughs> I have a little bit of my own take on things, which is very much tied to mental health and ability to actually accomplish things in certain <laughs> time frames. So yeah, the I would say the average is probably like three conferences a year at least.
0: And it also makes sense in terms of looking at regional and national as opposed to international and just national just given the geographies of different continents so that makes sense um, we've chatted through kind of like an overview of everything and as a last question before we close can you give us an insight into what your Viva looks like um, so the defense of the thesis at the end of your program, uh, which is probably um, an oral defense because you submit written and then, you know, what happens? Does your committee come into play again? How does that work? So,
1: um, obviously, I haven't personally gone through this yet. But uh, what it looks like typically is that you reach a certain, in essence, kind of final draft of your dissertation. You, at that point, it gets sent out to everyone on your committee officially. Um, They have, say, usually they have like a few weeks to be able to like read through and like process and make notes, comments, et cetera. Some of them, again, and I know my dissertation will probably look like this, where they will give me feedback beforehand. Um, things to start taking into consideration beforehand. Um, but that oral defense is kind of that Wild West for us. You go into it where it's the scheduled time with your entire committee and they ask you questions. They like you don't know what they're going to hit you with. It could be pertaining to the field as a whole that you're getting, it could be specific to theorists that you're using or texts that you're utilizing obviously the goal is to kind of show at this point your knowledge and the depth of knowledge that you have about your specific uh, field as well as your specific topic. So that, and then they obviously they determine whether you pass or not, right? So it's very much, I think, a wild west. I think some may know a little bit more beforehand going into that. I have a feeling I will not. Um, because that's how my exams were, did not have, have much knowledge in the sense of obviously I have my studied knowledge, but I did not have much as to what would be asked or how that would really look like. But in general, like my specific chair has always viewed them more as conversations and less as grillings. Um, so that's how she's approached it, um, and how she's kind of prepared me kind of going forward from all the other stages. And so I think that that's probably what that will look like for me personally.
0: Yeah. So that means that, you know, you don't have any external examiners coming in because over here you have, a, you know, an external examiner coming in from another university that's not part of your department. Um, and they kind of phone in.
1: Yeah, no. Then that- <laughs> <laughs>
0: I mean, it has
1: happened on a rare occasion that like, say somebody from a different department or someone from a different university per se would do that. And that has to do with like, say maybe all of your chair couldn't be, like all of your committee couldn't be, right? Like weird situations for that. Um, But overall scenario is like, it's your committee. Um, I do think that, and again, it's a think because I, I don't know officially, but I, it seems like they allow people to sit in on it. Um, So say you've got like friends, cohorts, etc. But typically speaking, it is just your committee that you're there talking with. (laughs) They're, they're on one side of the table, you're on the other and you just get to figure it out together.
0: (laughs) So just like over here, essentially. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Before we close, is there anything that I haven't asked you that you want to tell us about when it comes to the American system that, you know, I haven't mentioned yet?
1: I don't have anything like additional because we've really kind of covered the major I think the major differences in the gambit that like um, and the biggest obviously being comprehensive exams and the coursework that's involved um, as well as like our teaching at least at my specific university. I obviously can't speak to every university and I can't speak to like what every program does. but uh, the, those are kind of the general main differences. And those are, I think some of the things that cause the most confusion at say international conferences, or, (laughs) um, if you're say looking at an American university for like a PhD, or even for say teaching at those are, those are the main differences. And I think those are the most important to, to pay attention to, because it is, it is a very different process overall. The thing to keep in mind especially I think that looks most different from program to program is the comprehensive exams that can look extremely different. I know that we're in the process currently of revising that comprehensive exam process for our current program. And I think it's going to look more like there's like, I think you're going to put together like a teaching prospectus, like some sort of pedagogy thing. There is going to be more of a publication aspect um, where it's not necessarily expected that you get published but you create an article that would potentially be published right um over that time frame. so it seems to be more of an application based comprehensive exam that they're switching to, which seems better in my opinion uh, because up to that point what exams have we done and nothing there's no there's no timed writing in literature and the dissertation field it's all like studied and take your time and things like that so there's there there are others who um i know have done where it's honestly just straight up a a oral exam process so they have a list of things that they then are kind of like rapid fire here's this what's this quote from like those types of things that can look it looks very different from like university to university and honestly even just department department because i know like in our own university the psych program does something very different and uh, they get i think 48 hours to just at their own home like here's your exam prompts and then they get 48 hours to just like do all of their exams whereas mine was timed and monitored so it's very very different that that's that one of those components that just can look insane from one program to another, it just it does not look the same. Yeah, and
0: maybe it's worth it doing a whole episode on comps and what that means for the American PhDs. Probably. <laughs> if there's an interest, let us know, send us an email and uh we can definitely arrange doing an episode on that in a bit more detail because I feel like there's a lot to talk about, not just in terms of politics behind the exams itself, but also how it actually works. I feel like pulling the curtains back and really looking into the nitty gritty of what it means to do these comms and these exams um, can be really helpful. In the meantime, I'm gonna just close us off for today. Uh, Luciana, thank you so much for taking the time coming on and chatting me through and us through the American system. I feel like I've learned a lot and now I finally understand a couple of things that you consistently talk about and I just nod along to. (laughs) Yeah,
1: I'm uh, happy, obviously, to be here and happy to talk through those things. Uh, When we have conversations about our dissertations and and doctoral processes, there have definitely been some disconnects and some like, huh, I'm not sure what they're referencing. And so it is useful to have this type of conversation where we get to address both sides and essence of the pond and not just
0: one. Definitely, yeah. And I hope that you took something away from it as well. Thank you very much for listening to this episode. If you're doing a PhD in a country that we haven't mentioned in our PhD worldwide series yet, reach out to me and we can feature you on the show and we'll see you again in two weeks' time. Thanks again, Luciana. You're welcome. Thank you. This episode of PhD Penning was written and produced by me, Anna You can find the show on Instagram and Twitter at phdpenningpod or send me an email to phdpenningpod at gmail.com. If you like the content, rate the show five stars in your favorite podcast app or buy me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash phdpinningpod.